0: Chapter Eleven Part One of the Many Sided Franklin by Paul Lester Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chapter Eleven Politician and Diplomat. Part One. The first mistake in public business is the going into it, remarked poor Richard, and the worldly wise sage was speaking from the experience which keeps a dear school for franklin when he penned the sentence had been over twenty years a public servant the admonition however was little heeded, for he continued to hold office almost unceasingly to the end of his days i have heard he said of some great man whose rule it was with regard to offices never to ask for them and never to refuse them to which i have always added in my own practice never to resign them On another occasion, he asserted, not altogether truthfully, I have never solicited for a public office either for myself or any relation, yet I never refused one that I was capable of executing when a public service was in question, and I never bargained for salary, but contented myself with whatever my constituents were pleased to allow me. Franklin's entrance into politics may be said to date from his beginning to print the Pennsylvania Gazette, for he relates, "The leading men, seeing a newspaper now in the hands of one who could also handle a pen, thought it convenient to oblige and encourage me," and they gave him, as already told, "the public printing." The same year he secured the favor of the populace in another way. About this time there was a cry among the people for more paper money. And Franklin, taking advantage of it, wrote and printed an anonymous pamphlet entitled The Nature and Necessity of a Paper Currency, which, quote, was well received by the common people in general, but the rich men disliked it, for it increased and strengthened the clamor for more money, and they, happening to have no writers among them that were able to answer it, their opposition slackened, and the point was carried by a majority in the House, end quote in his twenty years active labor at his press the printer succeeded in making it a producer of wealth but at this time he had yet to learn the lesson that value is made by material and labor and not by words and promises later in life his intercourse with hume price turgot Mirabeau, and most of all with adam smith who submitted each chapter of his wealth of nations as he composed it to franklin for discussion and criticism opened his eyes to the truths that every paper dollar issued banishes or takes out of circulation a metal one so long as there is one left and that beyond that however the printing presses may be worked there will be no more money the total value of the mass decreasing as rapidly as the volume is swelled and in excessive issues tending even to fall so sharply as to produce an actual contraction not augmentation in the standard of value i lament with you he told a friend in speaking of the continental currency the many mischiefs the injustice the corruption of manners etc that attended a depreciating currency it is some consolation to me that I washed my hands of that evil by predicting it in Congress and proposing means that would have been effectual to prevent it if they had been adopted. Subsequent operations that I have executed demonstrate that my plan was practicable, but it was unfortunately rejected, However erroneous the economic views of the young printer might be, they brought Franklin into political notice, and in 1736 he was chosen clerk of the General Assembly, without opposition, a place of value aside from its salary, he states, because it gave him, quote, a better opportunity of keeping up an interest among the members, which secured to me the business of printing the votes, laws, paper money, and other occasional jobs for the public that, on the whole, were very profitable. End quote. the year following he was reappointed but not unanimously a new member making a long speech against him this opposition disturbed the office-holder and he sought to placate its originator not by servile respect but by a very typical artifice quote, having heard that he had in his library a certain very scarce and curious book i wrote a note to him expressing my desire of perusing that book and requesting he would do me the favor of lending it to me for a few days he sent it immediately and i returned it in about a week with another note expressing strongly my sense of the favor When we next met in the house, he spoke to me, which he had never done before, and with great civility, and he ever after manifested a readiness to serve me on all occasions, so that we became great friends, and our friendship continued to his death. This is another instance of the truth of an old maxim I had learned, which says, He that has once done you a kindness will be more ready to do you another than he whom you yourself have obliged. And it shows how much more profitable it is, prudently, to remove than to resent, return and continue inimical proceedings, end quote. I now began, Franklin relates, to turn my thoughts a little to public affairs and in succession set about methods for bettering the city watch, the fire service, and somewhat later, the cleaning and paving of the streets, end quote in 1737 as already told he was made postmaster of philadelphia which brought him forward yet more prominently but most of all it was his pamphlet plain truth which though it bore somewhat hard on both parties had the happiness not to give much offense to either that may be said to have made a public man of him the share I had in the late association, and so forth, he wrote, having given me a little present run of popularity, there was a pretty general intention of choosing me a representative of the city at the next election of the assemblymen. But I have desired all my friends who spoke to me about it to discourage it, declaring that I should not serve if chosen. End quote. His wish to keep out of office was idle, however. The governor made him a justice of the peace. This office, Franklin says, I tried a little by attending a few courts and sitting on the bench to hear causes, but finding that more knowledge of the common law than I possessed was necessary to act in that station with credit, I gradually withdrew from it, The corporation of the city elected him to the common council and later to the office of Alderman, an honor of which his mother doubtingly wrote, Quote, I am glad to hear you are so well respected in your town for them to choose you an alderman, although I don't know what it means or what the better you will be of it besides the honor of it. End quote nor did his plea avail to save him from election to the assembly for quote, the citizens at large chose me a burgess to represent them and my election to this trust was repeated every year for ten years without my ever asking any elector for his vote or signifying either directly or indirectly any desire of being chosen. Despite his endeavors to escape the office, he confesses that, quote, the station was agreeable to me, as I was at length tired of sitting there to hear debates in which, as clerk, I could take no part, and which were often so unentertaining that I was induced to amuse myself with making magic squares or circles or anything to avoid weariness, End quote. From this election to the assembly dates the real beginning of Franklin as a political influence, yet in a very brief space of time he made himself one of the dominant factors. Entering the arena on the question of public defense, he was quickly in opposition to the Penn brothers, the proprietors of the colony, the moot point being the question of taxing the proprietary lands the popular view was that their lands should bear an equal share and franklin became the leader of the party advocating this his chief opponents being the office holders and gentry and for years the contest was waged with a bitterness and vituperation unexampled in colonial politics without the aristocratic party being able to defeat him or to prevent him from carrying his measures at last however aided by some assistance from him they compassed their endeavor in 1764, the frontiersmen, chiefly Scotch-Irish, believing that the Quaker influence in the assembly prevented proper measures being taken for the defense of the borders from the hostile Indians, deliberately massacred a small village, men, women, and children, of peaceful and semi-civilized Indians in the interior of the colony, the remnants of the tribe which had welcomed and made the treaty with Penn. Their only crime, as Franklin said, being that they had a reddish-brown skin and and black hair. The brutality of the deed fired Franklin, and he wrote an account of it, perhaps the most righteously angry paper he ever penned, in which he mercilessly lashed and well nigh cursed the Christian white savages of Peckstang and Donegal. This was enough to consolidate the Presbyterian party, not merely on the frontier, but in the city, against him, and in the election of 1764 they united themselves with the proprietary faction. You can scarcely conceive, he told a friend, the number of bitter enemies that little piece has raised me among the Irish Presbyterians. Another publication of Franklin's, too, served to gain the coalition of yet a third class of voters. Some years before, in a strictly scientific pamphlet, he had philosophized on the question of immigration and asked, why should the palatine boers be suffered to swarm into our settlements and by herding together establish their language and manners to the exclusion of ours why should pennsylvania founded by the english become a colony of aliens who will shortly be so numerous as to germanize us this was reprinted now to injure him with that people and succeeded only too well Yet, though the Irish and German votes were thus united against him, a combination almost unfailingly successful in America, and though he was pelted with pamphlets, broadsides, and caricatures impugning his every public act and laying bare his private life, his hold was so great with the masses that he would have been re-elected but for an error of judgment in the party managers. A graphic account of the struggle was written by a Pennsylvanian. Quote, the poll was opened about nine in the morning the first of october and the steps so crowded till between eleven and twelve at night that at no time could a person get up in less than a quarter of an hour from his entrance at the bottom for they could go no faster than the whole column moved about three in the morning the advocates for the new ticket moved for a close but oh fatal mistake the old hands kept it open as they had a reserve of the aged and the lame which could not come in the crowd and were called up and brought out in chairs and litters and some who needed no help between three and six o'clock about two hundred voters as both sides took care to have spies all night the alarm was given to the new ticket men Horsemen and footmen were immediately dispatched to Germantown, etc., and by nine or ten o'clock they began to pour in, so that after the move for a close, seven or eight hundred votes were procured, about five hundred or near it, of which were for the new ticket, and they did not close till three in the afternoon, and it took them till one next day to count them off, end quote. The incident is one of peculiar interest, because it is the only time Franklin ever failed of an election, and indeed his political success was so uniform that a Quaker demanded of a mutual acquaintance, Friend Joseph, didst thee ever know Dr. Franklin to be in a minority? Yet though defeat is hardest to the most successful, he seems to have taken it well. Mr. Franklin, continued the above narrator, died like a philosopher and writing of his opposition to the Paxton rioters and of the resulting political effect, the defeated assemblyman said... I had, by this transaction, made myself many enemies among the populace, and the governor, with whose family our public disputes, had long placed me in an unfriendly light, and the services I had lately rendered him, not being of the kind that make a man acceptable, thinking it a favorable opportunity, joined the whole weight of the proprietary interest to get me out of the assembly, which was accordingly effected at the last election by a majority of about 25 in 4,000 voters the triumph to the proprietary party was more apparent than real. Though they had succeeded in defeating Franklin, they had not been able to beat his party, for, quote, the other counties returned nearly the same members who had served them before, so that the old faction had still a considerable majority in the house, end quote. The assembly, therefore, when met, chose Franklin, its agent, to go to Great Britain with a petition to the king that he end the proprietary government so all his opponents had accomplished was to place him in a position to do them infinitely more injury than would have been possible had he been re-elected to the assembly. Once already, Franklin had been appointed agent of the colony for a similar service, and the importance of these two visits to Great Britain is scarcely to be magnified it was not that he was able to accomplish all he endeavoured for his colony though in the first mission he had been fairly successful but that they brought him into relations with many of the leading men of england immeasurably broadened his horizon and trained him in diplomacy When, in seventeen seventy six, Congress sent him across the water to enter into relations with France, it was not a raw, untrained negotiator who went, but one schooled by fourteen years of the most difficult kind of diplomatic service. For colony agents, unlike foreign ministers, were compelled to plead their causes and compass their ends without the argument of the armies and fleets which are so influential a factor in international disputes yet so successfully did he perform this difficult task that pennsylvania re-chose him year after year and in succession massachusetts new jersey and georgia voted him their agent so that in time he came to be the representative of four of the colonies warmly attached as franklin was to pennsylvania he never seems to have been swayed by local interests as was so common in his time as early as 1751 he foresaw that a union of the colonies was necessary and was thinking out methods for overcoming provincial prejudices and antipathies while marveling that the six nations of ignorant savages should be capable of forming a scheme for such an union and be able to execute it in such a manner as that it has subsisted ages and appears indissoluble and yet that a like union should be impracticable for ten or a dozen English colonies, to whom it is more necessary and must be more advantageous, and who cannot be supposed to want an equal understanding of their interests." End quote. When news came, early in seventeen fifty four, that the French had driven the English from the forks of the Monongahela, he wrote an editorial comment, in which he warned the people that the enemy would never have dared to commit the aggression but for the quote, present disunited state of the British colonies, and the extreme difficulty of bringing so many different governments and assemblies to agree to any speedy and effectual measures for our common defense and security, while our enemies have the very great advantage of being under one direction with one council and one purse, end quote then he added a cut symbolizing the condition which attained such instant popularity that it was frequently reprinted and which again was used with telling effect at the outbreak of the revolution and when the federal constitution was under discussion Only a few days after this warning, Franklin went to work to put his idea into concrete form. He had been named one of the commissioners to negotiate a war alliance with the Six Nations, and on his way to the meeting, so he states, quote, I projected and drew a plan for the union of all the colonies under one government, so far as might be necessary for defense and other important general purposes. By this plan, the general government was to be administered by a president-general, appointed and supported by the crown, and a grand council was to be chosen by the representatives of the people of the several colonies, met in their respective assemblies many objections and difficulties were started but at length they were all overcome and the plan was unanimously agreed upon and copies ordered to be transmitted to the board of trade and to the assemblies of the several provinces its fate was singular the assemblies did not adopt it as they all thought there was too much prerogative in it and in england it was judged to have too much of the democratic The different and contrary reasons of dislike to my plan make me suspect that it was really the true medium, and I am still of opinion it would have been happy for both sides the water if it had been adopted. The colonies, so united, would have been sufficiently strong to have defended themselves. There would then have been no need of troops from England. Of course, the subsequent pretense for taxing America and the bloody contest it occasioned would have been avoided. But such mistakes are not new. History is full of errors of states and princes." Franklin was too inherently a statesman not to look further than the mere union of the American colonies, and almost from his entrance into public affairs he was considering the relation between the colonies and the mother country and striving to find means to maintain it. Years before ill-feeling had been developed, he declared, I have long been of opinion that the foundations of the future grandeur and stability of the British Empire lie in America. And though, like other foundations, they are low and little now, they are nevertheless broad and strong enough to support the greatest political structure that human wisdom ever yet erected. End quote with the increase of the colonies he predicted a vast demand is growing for british manufactures, a glorious market wholly in the power of britain in which foreigners cannot interfere which will increase in a short time even beyond her power of supplying though her whole trade should be to her colonies therefore britain should not too much restrain manufacturers in her colonies a wise and good mother will not do it To distress is to weaken, and weakening the children weakens the whole family. And with true prescience, he wrote, It has long appeared to me that the only true British policy was that which aimed at the good of the whole British Empire, not that which sought the advantage of one part in the disadvantage of the other, therefore all measures of procuring gain to the mother country arise from loss to her colonies and all of gain to the colonies arising from or occasioning loss to britain especially where the gain was small and the loss great every abridgment of the power of the mother country where that power was not prejudicial to the liberties of the colonists and every diminution of the privileges of the colonists Where they were not prejudicial to the welfare of the mother country, I in my own mind condemned as improper, partial, unjust, and mischievous, tending to create dissensions and weaken that union on which the strength, solidity, and duration of the empire greatly depended. This ends Chapter Eleven, Part One.